So after the first day of practice, you're all still here, which is a good sign. The first day is the hardest. So having made it through today, I think uh, things will be okay. Tonight I want to talk about uh, the process of meditation and defining some key terms. We can understand meditation as being an investigation of who we are. It's a systematic way of exploring our experience from the inside. It's an exploration of the body. It's an exploration of thoughts, feelings, of emotions. It's an exploration at the deepest level of consciousness itself. And the practice is really the discipline of training the attention to increase the power of observation. And as this observing power of the mind gets stronger, we begin to see more clearly the inner processes of our own minds, of our own experience. We begin to understand in a clearer way what forces in the mind lead to suffering, what forces in the mind lead to greater happiness, to greater peace. Now this particular methodology is called in the Pali language Vipassana. And Vipassana literally means, the Pali word means seeing clearly. So really what you're practicing, you're practicing seeing clearly meditation. You know, and the usual translation of it in English is insight meditation. In order to understand the process, I think it would be helpful to define and clarify a few key terms. And it sometimes gets confusing because we often use the same word in English to refer to different experiences. So if we're not tuned into how the word or the term is being used, then there can be some confusion in the mind. So I'll spend a little time this evening defining some of the important terms in the practice. Now the first term is consciousness. And in the context of these teachings, consciousness means the ordinary, ongoing process of knowing different aspects of our experience, different objects of experience. So it's simple knowing. And this process of consciousness, this process of knowing, (coughs) is going on in all beings. It's going on in animals, it's going on in human beings, it's going on in babies, in young children, in adults. So consciousness is an ongoing process of knowing. Sometimes it's interesting just to watch a pet or a young child. We can see, we can observe so clearly that the pet, the animal, the young child, 
is busy in their lives knowing sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch sensations and has different emotions. We can watch that process going on in just the same way that we're knowing all these things. You know, we have a lot of neighborhood dogs around here. And just to watch, <coughs> you know, you can just see the dogs just being led around by their senses, you know, and it's just a lot by their, their nose and what they see. So the knowing is happening. Or we see the knowing in babies. You know, we see consciousness in babies and the tremendous emotional lability in response to their environment and situations. So all of this is the ordinary knowing, consciousness in daily life. And it's simply acting out all the habit patterns of our conditioning. And for this reason, I have a special name for it. I call it black lab consciousness. Mostly in our lives, this is how we're going through the day, like black labs or golden retrievers, just acting out these moments of simple knowing, of consciousness. But every once in a while, and this happens more frequently with practice, is we begin to remember what we're doing as we're doing it. We become aware of what we're doing as we're doing it. And this is the second term, which is mindfulness. It's the quality of mind that is aware that we're knowing. In black lab consciousness, knowing is there but there's no awareness of the knowing. When we're mindful, we're aware that we're knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, a taste. So we could call mindfulness present moment wakefulness. It's interesting, in Pali, the Pali word for mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I, and the root of the word in Pali is to remember. But it's not so much about remembering the past, although in a very general sense it could be included, it's much more about present moment remembering. We remember in the moment what it is that's arising. And in this context, I'm using the term mindfulness and awareness synonymously. In different traditions, and in some different contexts, there are distinctions that could be made between mindfulness and awareness. But for the purpose of the talk this evening and our practice over these next days, think of them as being synonymous, mindfulness and awareness. So as an example of the difference between black lab consciousness and consciousness with mindfulness, with awareness. 
just imagine yourselves at the movies, you know, quite absorbed in the story, you know, feeling happy or sad or excited or fearful, just depending on what's happening, you know, on the screen. And then maybe in a certain moment, you remember that you're watching a movie. It's like a moment of waking up to what is actually going on. You become aware that you're seeing and hearing and feeling. What's interesting to observe in that moment is that when we become aware, when we become mindful of what's actually going on, we feel a little more space in the mind. We're not so contained, we're not so confined as in the black lab consciousness, where we're simply pulled into what we know. Here we're aware that we're knowing, and so the mind becomes more spacious. Before this moment of mindfulness, consciousness is still there. We're not unconscious. So if somebody asked you what the movie's about, you could tell them. So the process of consciousness is going on all the time. But as you know, we're not always mindful. So our practice or meditation practice, particularly in the first few days, leads us to one important insight. You know, it's called insight meditation. Well, you have all already had the first important insight. And that is seeing how often our minds get lost in the movies of our lives. You know, we get lost in the various sense worlds of sight and sound and smell and taste and sensation. Have you noticed at all hearing the lunch bell, walking into the dining room with the strongest intention to stay mindful and aware throughout the whole process. And then somehow you find yourself at the table with a plate full of food. <laughs> what happened in the meantime? You know, there's, there's a lot of activity and there's all the conditioned reactions and attitudes around food. How mindful do we really stay in that whole process of going through the line and seeing the food and smelling it and taking it? Very often we're just carried along in the process. So one of the first things we see is how often we get lost in the activities of our life. We're not aware. And we also see, which I'm sure you've noticed today, how often we get lost in the internal movies of the mind, in thoughts, in images, in memories, in fantasies, in projects that you're working on, in brilliant new ideas. There is a phenomenon called Vipassana brilliance, you know, where all of a sudden people are sitting 
just these great ideas start coming, and the mind just gets pulled into them. So we get lost in these internal movies. We get lost in the many attitudes and reactions in our minds to all of these things, the judgments, the self-judgment, the comments. It's as if we hop on these trains of association, of internal association. We have no idea where the train is going. We don't know that we've hopped on. And then somewhere down the line, there's a moment of remembering. There's a moment of mindfulness. Oh, a thought. Now, often we call this process the wandering mind, and you may you know, have noticed it. But in a way, that's a misnomer because the mind doesn't actually go anyplace. It's not that the mind is wandering. Rather, different objects are arising in the mind and we're not mindful. So just that change of frame can have an influence in how you do the practice. Because if you think of it as the wandering mind, then there's a kind of efforting to drag the mind back, to pull the mind back. But if you see that the mind is not going anyplace, it's always right here, and it's simply a question again and again of waking up to what presents itself whether it's the breath or a sensation in the body or a thought or an image. So it's always right here. When we understand it in that way, the practice takes on a greater ease. Don't underestimate <coughs> the importance of this first insight which is seeing clearly the tendency of the mind to get lost in the stream of consciousness, in the story of our lives, and the understanding of the power of mindfulness to wake us up. Most people don't know this about their minds. You know, if you went out on the street, a person on the street interview, and just asked, you know, do you, do you get lost in the stories of your mind? Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm aware. I, I know what I'm doing. If people have not actually turned their attention inward, mostly they don't know what their minds are doing. And so it's like that black lab consciousness. So seeing this is very important because it illuminates for us the power of mindfulness to keep us awake. <coughs> There's a Native American writer, a beautiful writer, her name is Louise Erdrich. And I came across this in a magazine article about her, and she wrote, and it just describes the meditative process so well. She wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. But every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. 
just that image of something shattering like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. The river is always going on, but falling into it, we are aware of what's going on. So this is huge. There are many methods and techniques for developing and strengthening mindfulness. Just within the Buddhist tradition, just in one of the Buddhist traditions, there are over 50 different ways of doing Vipassana. So this can be approached from many different angles. I think the very simplest way of understanding the practice is simply paying attention to whatever arises in the present moment. Sit and know you're sitting. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Thinking, know you're thinking. Taking a step, knowing you're taking a step. So just a little sidebar here about language. The word know. Sit and know you're sitting. Before it was defined as black lab consciousness, just knowing different sense objects. In this context, we're using the word know in a different way. So you need to pay attention to that. Sit and know you're sitting, in this context means sit and be mindful that you're sitting. Sit and be aware that you're sitting. Okay, so it's important to learn how to hear the context of these words, because these words often get used in very different contexts. Is this clear so far? Okay, the instruction is very simple. Sit and know you're sitting. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. But as one of my first Dharma teachers said, it's simple but not easy. Because of the conditioning of the mind to get lost in thoughts, you know, in feelings, in fantasies. So for many people, as a way of strengthening this faculty of mindfulness, of awareness, because this is a quality of mind, this is a factor of mind, it can be developed, it can be strengthened. For many people, it's helpful in order to strengthen mindfulness, to use a primary object of attention. Because if we start with just a simple, open awareness, be aware of whatever arises, very often we just get lost. So we use a tool. We use the tool of a primary object, and often it's the breath. Now, the stabilizing of mindfulness using a primary object has two important components. And in the Buddhist psychology, which is a very sophisticated analysis of consciousness and all the different mental qualities associated with it, in the Buddhist psychology, the two factors which strengthen concentration and mindfulness 
are called right aim, right aim, and then sustaining the attention. So I want to talk about these two factors. What does aiming the mind mean? When you come into a sitting or are doing a walking practice, if you come in and simply have the hope to be with the breath or the step or even an initial intention, okay, this sitting I'm going to be with the breath for the hour, what's the lasting power of that? Probably about three and a half seconds. You know, we need something, we need, we need certain qualities of mind to give some strength to that intention. So the quality of mind that gives it strength is the basic in- intentionality of aiming the mind with each breath, not just once at the beginning of the sitting. With each breath, there's that intention, aim the mind towards the breath. And through that aiming... It lands on it. Something I talked about on the last scientist retreat. This is my foray into the world of science. I see this importance of right aiming as being an implication of the second law of thermodynamics. Namely, that systems tend to disorder I'll probably get a lot of notes tomorrow saying, you didn't understand this at all, (laughs) but let me try. Systems tend to disorder, entropy. Why? As I did my little reading on it, one of the explanations given for the law of entropy is things tend to disorder because the possibilities in any given system for disorder are much greater than for order. And one of the examples given was You know, if you throw an unbound book up in the air and it falls to the ground, the chances that the pages are going to fall in sequence, very, very small. Because the possibilities for for them being out of sequence are so much greater. Well, it's kind of like that with the mind. The possibilities for the mind to be elsewhere than the breath are much greater than being on the breath. I mean, the mind could be with sights and sounds and thoughts and images and fantasies, all kinds of things. So left to its own devices, the mind is going to tend to disorder. So we need an energy in the system to bring about order. The energy is this quality of aiming. With each breath, we have that intention aim the mind, connect with the breath each time. One of the empowering things about doing this is that very early on, and even if it's just for short times, we begin to see that this is something that can actually be done. We can train the mind. And even if you just have the sense for one breath or one step, aiming the mind with that intention to connect with it, 
it brings about a beginning and then growing sense of confidence. Yes, the mind can be trained. The mindfulness can be trained. This is something that can be developed, something we can do. Okay, so this is the first factor of mind that strengthens mindfulness, right aim. But once we connect, the second factor is sustaining the attention for the duration of the breath, training the mind to stay with it. So it's aiming and sustaining and doing that each time with each breath, with each step. Okay, right now is a very special time in the retreat because it's the first of the secret teachings. And there's a little story involved with this. And it's a Sharon story. (laughs) Uh, When she first went to India and was practicing and was getting the teachings on being with the breath, you know, just staying with one breath, she thought, well, you know, that's probably just the beginning instructions. And she did it. And she was really quite a good yogi. But she was waiting for the higher teachings. You know, the breath's kind of prosaic. But day after day, just be with the breath. Just be with the breath. And she's waiting for the higher teachings. Never got them. <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> this is the moment for the higher teachings. <clears throat> it's not being with the breath. It's being with half a breath. Because one breath is too long. To be mindful of an in and an out way too much. Half a breath. Aim and sustain for each half breath. Half breath we can do. And a half breath is all we have to do. A half breath at a time. Aim and sustain for the in-breath. Aim and sustain for the out-breath. Half breath, half breath, half breath. After a very short period of time, you experience the stability of mindfulness, the stability of awareness. So you didn't have to wait 40 years to get these teachings. (laughs) It is really the key. There's one other key to engaging in this very simple practice. It's not complicated at all. It's very simple. The other key to working with it in a productive way has to do with the quality of the effort we're making in aiming and sustaining. And as I mentioned, with no effort, the mind just tends to disorder. The mind just keeps getting lost. But very often, as people begin the practice and aim and sustain with each half breath, they make too much effort. It's too much forcing. It's like overshooting the mark. 
And then it simply builds up a lot of tension and struggle and frustration and disappointment. So understanding and playing with, this this will take an investigation and a real dancing with, what's the quality of effort you're using? What's the attitude in your mind as you're being with the breath? I'd like to read something (coughs) from one of our teachers. He's a Burmese monk. Um, His name is Saida Utejaniya. He said, in our context, right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It is not energy used to focus hard on something. It is an effort which is simply directed at remaining aware. It is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. This is very important. The mindfulness, the awareness, is not difficult at all. It's simply being present. There's no forcing that's needed to be mindful. What's difficult is to maintain it continuously. For this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. You do not need strong effort to be mindful. When we are present, we become aware of what is happening. Simply reminding yourself to be in the present moment is all the effort you need. So do you get a sense of that? As you're with the breath, as you're with the primary object, really pay attention to the quality of the effort. Are you forcing? Are you struggling? Are you trying to feel it? Or are you simply relaxed back? The breath is happening by itself. If we're present, the awareness will automatically be there. Okay, so as we practice this aiming and sustaining with this relaxed perseverance, not a forcing, not a struggling, the mindfulness becomes stronger, it becomes more stable, it becomes more continuous. And this then leads us to the third important term I wanted to talk about. So this consciousness, which is the simple, ordinary knowing, there's mindfulness, which is that quality that's aware that we're knowing. We've waken up to what our experience is. The third term to explore is wisdom. Although mindfulness is essential for waking up in our lives, if we're not mindful, we don't know what's going on. We're just, as I said, acting out the patterns of our conditioning. So mindfulness is essential for waking up to our lives. But mindfulness by itself is not enough. We need to use mindfulness. We need to use this quality of awareness, this growing power of wakefulness, as a platform for investigation and inquiry. Mindfulness tells us or shows us what it is that's there. 
Wisdom is what we understand about it. Wisdom is what we're learning from the experience. So it's not enough simply to be mindful. We want to employ the wisdom quality of mind that is actually investigating, that is actually inquiring into the nature of the experience. When we're no longer simply lost, Know, in the stream of consciousness, in the internal stories, in the external activities, when we're mindful, when we're aware, then we can begin to ask some very fundamental questions. They're the questions which give rise to wisdom. What is the nature of this experience that's arising? What is the nature of suffering? What is the nature of freedom? We can ask questions on so many different levels in terms of understanding our lives. So I'll give just a few examples of how wisdom begins to develop from growing mindfulness. As the mind settles, we're a little bit more with the breath, not so lost, we start feeling our bodies in a much more immediate and direct way. And I'm sure you've had this experience today. Begin to feel different sensations of pressure, of tightness, of throbbing, of pulsing, of heat, of cold, just the ordinary sensations that come about in our bodies. Now you might think, well, this is quite ordinary. But actually, an important shift has taken place. Because as you become aware of the different sensations that you feel in the body, we're beginning to distinguish between our concepts about experience and the awareness of the actual felt sensations. So, for example, it's the difference between thinking, oh, my back hurts. Have you had that thought at all today? Or my knees hurt? That's a concept. That's very different than the actual experience of feeling the burning, the twisting, the stabbing, whatever the sensation might be. Most people don't make this distinction. The concepts and experience have become inextricably intertwined. I mean, just as a simple example, if we would go out again, the person on the street, little interview, just ask people to hold their hands together and ask them what they feel. Oh, I feel my hands touching. We don't feel hands. There's no sensation called hand. We feel the pressure, the warmth, the tingling. Hand is a concept. Hand is a certain image we have in the mind. We're not feeling hand. We think hand and then feel different sensations. So you might be wondering, so what? You know, why is this distinction so important? The reason, not only is it important, It is a critical juncture in meditation practice. 
And it's critical because the concepts we use to describe experience don't change. We use the word hand or body or back or leg. Body today, body yesterday, body tomorrow. Back hurts today, back hurts tomorrow, back hurt yesterday. When we use the concept, we are seduced into the illusion on some level of permanence because the concept doesn't change. When we're on the level of actual experience, we see that these sensations are changing and transforming all the time and with increased power of mindfulness, the refinement of our perception of change gets immeasurably strengthened. We see that, and this happens as the meditation deepens, there is no solidity at all in this body. We really begin to experience from the inside the body as an energy field. When we're lost in the realm of concept, we don't see that, we don't understand that. This understanding of the difference between the concepts we have about the body, about our lives, about our experience, the difference between the concepts we have about them and the actual experience has tremendous implications for how we are relating to what's going on. So I'll just give a couple of examples. It's not uncommon for people coming on a retreat to feel somewhat discouraged or impatient when they realize that meditation is not all bliss. You know, we might have the, oh yeah, I'm going to come and have a nice relaxing week and just settle in and it's going to be all bliss. And even for very experienced meditators, this is true, you may have been practicing for 20 years. How often do we equate good sittings with pleasant feeling and bad sittings with unpleasant feeling? You know, maybe in your daily practice, you have a sit, you get up, somebody asks you, oh, how was your sit? Oh, it was great. You know, I felt light and... My mind was calm and concentrated, great sitting. Or maybe you get up and somebody, how was it? Oh, it's terrible. You know, I was bored, I was restless, there was pain. The pleasantness or unpleasantness of the sitting has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the meditation. Because the quality of the meditation has to do with awareness and wisdom. Are we mindful of what was present? Are we learning from it or not? Again, Sayadaw Tejaniya. You have to work with and accept both pleasant and unpleasant experience. You only want pleasant. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of seeing what is true? So this is a very important point. We really have to drop into 
the actual felt sensation level of what's going on, and we see that it's always changing. It's not always pleasant. It's not always unpleasant. This is the nature of change. And it's only through seeing that that we can actually learn something about it. Now, distinguishing between concepts, between our description of things and the experience itself, does not mean that we discard concepts. So I'm not suggesting that at all. Very obviously, concepts play an essential part in our lives. It's through concepts that we order experience. It's through concepts that we describe experience to ourselves and one another. But we need to take care that we understand the difference between being an expert in music theory and listening to Mozart. We need to really understand clearly the difference between reading a menu and having dinner. You know, the concepts can describe things and help us understand things, but they are not the experience itself. And even as we employ concepts, you know, in all the many useful ways that we do, and I'm sure in your work you use concepts very creatively and productively, It's illuminating to see how the particular concepts that we choose condition and influence our activities and our feelings about what's happening. So I want to read a great poem which illustrates this. And this is one of my favorite poems. And it just, it, it's, it illustrates how shifting concepts can totally change our perception and our experience of the situation. It's a poem by Billy Collins. <laughs> and the title of it is, Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music. Barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. 
that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) There is no such thing as a disturbance in practice. It's all a barking dog solo. Whatever arises, it's just part of the symphony of our life experience. Can we include it in that way? Why don't we? Because very often, concepts jump in. We interpret experience through our concepts. Oh, that's, there's that damn dog again. It's just a change in our mind, a change in the way we hold things, a change in the way we understand things. So don't underestimate the power that concepts, both very conventional and ordinary ones and very sophisticated ones, the power of concepts to condition how we experience the world, how we experience ourselves. That's why this understanding of the distinction between concepts and direct experience is a doorway to deeper and deeper levels of wisdom. So wisdom understands the difference between concept and direct experience. Wisdom begins to see on deeper and deeper levels the changing nature of phenomena. It sees it with greater and greater refinement. Wisdom also explores the very nature of thought. Thought is a very interesting phenomena. Now, there are endless. You had to guess how many thoughts you had today. I read some some article, I I forget. It said something like an ordinary person. I may have the number wrong, but, you know, it was like, there's 10,000 thoughts a day. And I was wondering how they, (laughs) I don't know, maybe in the lab you're measuring (laughs) how many thoughts. There's a lot. Do we ever stop to consider what a thought is? Not the content. You know, not... What is it saying? But phenomenologically, what is a thought? What is it as a phenomenon? It's very interesting. Mostly, we just spend our lives either lost in thought or very often, in a way that's not very skillful in meditation, fighting with thoughts, struggling with thoughts, thinking, oh, I'm meditating, I shouldn't be thinking, which is incorrect. It's not about stopping thinking. It's about becoming mindful that we're thinking. So every time you wake up from being lost in a thought, and this happens many, many times a day, every time you awaken from being lost, you can practice being delighted by the wakefulness rather than judging yourself for having been lost. Because the judgment about being lost is just getting lost in another thought again. 
So first we want to see meditation is not about stopping thinking, it's about being aware that we're thinking. So that's mindfulness. And then wisdom comes in. What is a thought? Very interesting to look directly. And one of the things we begin to notice is that un, unnoticed thoughts have tremendous power in our lives. Thoughts are arising all the time, and when we're not mindful that they're there, they're like little dictators in the mind, saying, do this, do that, go here, go there. And it's just this, this run of thoughts telling us how to live our lives. And what's so amazing is that when we become mindful of a thought and are actually looking at it directly, we see that the thought as a phenomena is little more than nothing. It's just like it's just like a little energy blip in the mind. It has no power at all. The only power thoughts have is the power that we give them. And we give them power when we're not aware, when we're not mindful of them. So wisdom is really investigating this nature of thought, and it is so liberating. We'll talk over the week of how many different kinds of thoughts and concepts condition our lives, and how when we see them as just thought, it's a huge burden released. Again, this insight into the nature of thought is so important. I mean, it's not just a theoretical, oh yeah, thoughts really are nothing when we're aware of them and very powerful when we're not. I mean, it's an interesting observation, but it has tremendous, tremendous implications in our lives. Because very often we're not simply just daydreaming away or in some reverie of thought. Very often, these thoughts are getting acted out. And when we look in the world to so many places of suffering in the world, what is it that's really going on? People acting out thoughts of greed, of fear, of hatred, It's just thoughts in the mind that are getting acted out because there is no awareness at all, no mindfulness at all of the thought itself, the fact that it's arising, of the nature of thought. It's just coming and getting acted out. And it's not only out there in the world. We see this happening in our own lives. So as the mindfulness gets stronger and more stable, as the wisdom gets stronger, and we really see into the nature of the difference between concepts and direct experience, see into the nature of impermanence, see into the nature of thought, the insubstantial nature of it, we begin to make wiser choices in our lives. We begin to have some space in our minds where we can see, is this skillful, is it unskillful? Is it wholesome, is it unwholesome? We make wiser choices. We lead more fulfilled lives. Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so well. He said, happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. That's what this practice is really all about.
We talked about meditation as being the interplay of consciousness, mindfulness, and wisdom. It's just these three aspects of the mind interweaving with one another in different ways. And the whole unfolding journey of understanding ourselves can be held in a very big context. It can be held in the context (coughs) that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. We can hold the aspiration, we can hold the motivation that our meditation practice, our exploration, and our lives be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. That can be the motivating factor behind our meditation practice. It can be behind our work in the world. What is the motivation? In Buddhism, this motivation is called bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is the aspiration that our practice and our lives be for the welfare and benefit of all. And this is vast. This is a, a vast and noble aspiration. So we want to have a great humility with it. You know, and really understand it's planting a seed. We just plant a small seed. And maybe you plant it every day, every morning when you wake up or before you go to sleep or before a sitting or at the end of a sitting. You just plant a seed. May this be, may this practice be for the welfare and benefit of all. A seed is very powerful. Just plant a seed and water it. Thoreau had some wonderful words to say about a seed. He said, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. So this is our practice. We're just we're planting the seed. We're planting the seeds of mindfulness, of awareness, of wisdom, of compassion. Let's sit for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.